Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute, uh, both to those of you joining us here in the uh, Frederick Hyatt Auditorium and uh, those joining remotely via the magic of the moving pictures I'm told the young people today enjoy so much. Um, I'm <clears throat> My name is Julian Sanchez. I'm a senior fellow here. Uh, and uh, we're here to discuss the path towards digital privacy reform. And I refer not merely here to the uh, unprecedented public scrutiny uh, on government intelligence surveillance that has emerged over the past year as a result of leaks originating with former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. Um, often I find in my experience speaking and writing about uh, those issues that members of the public are shocked to discover that uh, extraordinarily easy access to our most sensitive forms of digital uh, information is not restricted to hyper-secretive spy agencies chasing uh, international terrorists and spies, uh, but that uh, smaller-scale versions of similar capabilities are enjoyed by local prosecutors and police departments uh, on the trail of drug dealers and tax evaders. Uh, certainly, even collectively, they can't quite compete with NSA for sheer magnitude. But the explosion of digital surveillance by law enforcement is nevertheless quite staggering, especially when we recognize that until extraordinarily recently, it has largely occurred out of public view. Um, just to give you a, a taste of the information, the, the uh, scale of this that we've recently begun to become aware of, uh, using uh, companies who uh, we have representatives of here today and which have, have voluntarily begin providing, uh, begun providing some transparency on that score. Uh, Google, in the second half of 2013 alone, fielded more than 10,000 requests for government information about more than 18,000 accounts. Uh, 4,000 of, uh, 4, of those accounts were the targets of search warrants. Uh, the rest, subpoenas and other kinds of court orders subject to much lower standards. Uh, only 11 of those orders were full-blown wiretap orders, which require a fairly high standard uh, of evidence, uh, higher even than an ordinary search warrant, uh, and which we do have public information about because wiretap orders um, are aggregated and, and counted annually in a fairly detailed report. Uh, Microsoft uh, must be jealous. They, they uh, fielded a, uh, a measly 5,000 requests in the same six-month period at the end of 2013, covering some 13,000 accounts. And again, uh, as for other companies that have not voluntarily begun providing transparency reports, we simply have no accurate picture of the scale of government access to uh, either the contents of people's digital communications or uh, equivalently sensitive metadata about their online activities. Um, this is somewhat remarkable because as the Supreme Court recently uh, held in a unanimous ruling in uh, Riley v. California, a search of a modern cell phone uh, the data on that phone, would typically expose to the government far more than the most exhaustive search of a house. This is sort of bringing out the constitutional heavy ammunition, since the home is traditionally the most uh, strongly protected domain of privacy. Um, the court further observed, uh, showing that they're uh, somewhat clueful technologically at least, uh, that increasingly this kind of sensitive information is as likely to be re uh, stored remotely as locally. And that, as they put it, cell phone users often may not know whether particular information is stored on the device or in the cloud, and it generally makes little difference. But the court meant, of course, that it makes little difference to the user. Uh, under federal statute, that is to say the 1986 Electronic Communications Privacy Act, it actually makes an enormous difference 
under many circumstances, the statute allows cloud stored uh, contents or metadata about people's internet activities, uh, so detailed as to be equally invasive, to be, pursuant, uh, uh, to be obtained pursuant to mere subpoenas or uh, other court orders with, with substantially lower standards than search warrants. Uh, certainly, uh, court orders in several district, uh, court rulings in several districts, most notably the 2010 Warshak ruling, have empowered uh, major providers to insist on warrants for content, at least. Uh, but this leaves us with an uncertain patchwork of rules, leaving users, tech companies, and law enforcement all fairly uncertain about the scope of legitimate government authority to, to demand information about users. Almost everyone at this point acknowledges that this state of affairs is not tenable. Uh, more than half of members in the U.S. House of Representatives have signed on uh, to, as co-sponsors to legislation uh, that would update uh, privacy safeguards for the cloud computing era. Even the Justice Department and the FBI have effectively acknowledged that the law is out of date and amendments requiring warrants for remotely stored content are appropriate. Yet nearly 30 years after ACPA's passage, uh, reform remains stalled. So today, we're going to explore uh, why that is and what we might do about it. Uh, and before I uh, introduce our uh, panel uh, of experts to discuss this, I am very pleased to say we have with us Congressman uh, Ted Poe to deliver introductory remarks. Uh, Congressman Poe represents the 2nd District of Texas, uh, currently the first Republican to hold that honor, and came to Congress from a long career in the law, including eight years as a felony prosecutor and two decades as a Harris County judge, where his Wikipedia page will tell you he became famous or, or notorious for creative sentencing, although uh, Representative Poe assures me that uh, many of those uh, uh, colorful stories uh, should be marked citation needed. Uh, more relevant today, he has been a powerful advocate for digital privacy reform uh, with his colleague Zoe Lofgren. He uh, co-sponsored the Online Communications and Geolocation Protection Act, uh, which, as he put it in an op-ed last year, aims to revise an outdated ECPA to protect internet users from intrusive and unwarranted government surveillance. I'm very pleased to welcome Congressman Ted Poe. Thank you, Julian. Thanks for the <clears throat> invitation to be here. It's good to see all y'all uh, this afternoon. Uh, as Julian mentioned, in my other life, uh, uh, before I came to Congress, I spent 30 years down at the, the courthouse in Houston, the criminal courts building, which I dubbed the Palace of Perjury. Uh, and I spent that as time as a prosecutor and then as a judge, a felony court judge, hearing criminal cases, everything from uh, stealing to killing and everything in between. Uh, because of that experience, uh, I spent a great amount of time uh, dealing with the U.S. Constitution, primarily the Bill of Rights and primarily the Fourth Amendment. To give you a little background and then address the specific issues that we have here today, uh, back in colonial days, the British were determined to make sure that goods brought into the United States were not smuggled, because if they were smuggled, they didn't pay, the colonists didn't pay the tax that was due the king. So they had uh, came up with an idea to search the colonists, primarily just their businesses and their homes, to see if any of that smug those smuggled goods came in without paying the tax to the king. And they invented this document called the Writs of Assistance, which was a flowery term for a general warrant for the British military 
could go into someone's residence or business and look for really anything, but primarily looking for smuggled goods where people didn't pay the tax that was due the king. This irritated the colonists a great deal. After all, they did have a war of independence. Uh, one of the reasons was because of the writs of assistance. And after the war was over, we got our independence from Britain. We wrote a constitution. And then they came up with a few Bill of Rights, 10 of those, that really had their founding and purpose to prevent government from intruding the right of privacy of specific individuals under the new country called the United States, which led to the enactment of the Bill of Rights, primarily the Fourth Amendment. I have it up here on the, uh, the podium. Uh, I guess if I was high-tech enough, I would have it here on the screen, but it's on a poster. And I will read to you the Fourth Amendment, uh, and you can look at it. There's a lot of provisions in it. Volumes of legal treatises have been written about the Fourth Amendment. Volumes. And we're not going to have a law school uh, indoctrination on the Fourth Amendment, but let's just read it and then see how it applies to today's society in 2014. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, their houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly, excuse me, describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. What that means is this, that if law enforcement wants to search something in your residence or in your effects or in your property, the officer that wants to do the searching must go before an independent magistrate, the buffer between law enforcement and the citizen, and swear out an oath under oath, a warrant to search a specific place for a specific thing or person. That's on the back end of the Fourth Amendment. It has to be very specific. It has to be specific enough uh, under our law that if the judge signed the warrant, the judge could give the warrant to a different person, and that law enforcement officer could read this warrant, know exactly where to go, know exactly what he was supposed to be seizing, and who he should be arresting if there is an arrest. That's how specific the warrants have to be today. And that was the reason the Fourth Amendment was written the way that it was written. But the purpose is to secure privacy of the individual. So let's use a hypothetical. Not a it's not specific, uh, really too specific, but it's a general hypothetical uh, that I would like to just talk about. We have two notorious outlaws in Texas. That's where I'm from. Uh, one of them is Ollie Oglethorpe, and the other one is Bobby Joe Oglethorpe. They are bad guys. They are bank robbers. They rob people. They rob banks. And let's say that they decide to come to Washington, and they plot and scheme to rob the Congressional Credit Union over in the Longworth building. They go inside. They rob the place. They take the loot, and they make away their escape and get away and they hide somewhere in Washington, D.C. 
That's all we know. They're not captured. But we know probably that the two individuals uh, are somewhere in Washington. So if law enforcement decided, okay, we're going to go get Ollie Oglethorpe and Bobby Joe Oglethorpe, we know they're in Washington. They would go to a judge. They would say to the judge, we know they're in Washington. We know they're in zip code 20003. But that's really all we know. We would like a warrant to go into all of the places in zip code 20003 and find Bobby Joe Oglethorpe and his brother Ollie, and most importantly, get the loot. There is not a judge that would sign the warrant to allow law enforcement to go into every building and residence. We all know that's absurd. There is no way that would occur because the residence or the place in the warrant is not specific enough to go to that location and find the Oglethorpes and or the money. That would be a general warrant. That would be uh, warrants that maybe the British would have imposed back in colonial days because the Fourth Amendment prohibits that type of conduct. However, let's assume that the Oglethorpes have spent some time on the Internet discussing this criminal activity, discussing where they're going to hide, where they hid the money, and some of their other criminal enterprises. If law enforcement had probable cause to believe that occurred, then they could go to the appropriate judge and get a specific warrant and maybe go to one of these folks here and get that information, their emails. But let's say they don't have probable cause. They just don't have enough information to convince a judge they have probable cause to believe the information is there that they're looking for. So what do they do? They wait six months. And all of a sudden, on six months and one day, without the use of a warrant stating probable cause, they may seize that information without probable cause because the law says you can't seize it. One would think that that's absurd, that just because it is six months in one day that the, the warrant uh, requirement should not be required. But that is currently the law, because the law was written too long ago to keep up with modern technology. The Electronic Communications Privacy Act, as Julian said, was written in 1986. The Internet and all of our uh, electronic Knowledge and storage has changed since then. So because of that, Zoe Lofgren and myself and others have sponsored uh, one piece of legislation, and there's other pieces of legislation where members of Congress have signed on to, to fix that problem and guarantee the right of privacy if email storage is over six months old stored in the cloud somewhere. Will the Supreme Court, independent of this legislation, will the Supreme Court rule that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy if your emails are stored over six months in the cloud? I don't know how they would rule. I really don't. That's why it's up to Congress, has the responsibility, to legally state there is an expectation of privacy because that is the key phrase. 
under our law and under the Fourth Amendment, what is the reasonable expectation of privacy of the citizen whose information or property or papers is being seized? I don't know what the judges on the Supreme Court would rule. They may say, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. There's people in law enforcement say, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. We want to seize all that information. And then there's others who say, yeah, there should be a reasonable expectation of privacy. We can debate that issue theoretically forever. So Congress must come in and say, yes, there is a legal expectation of privacy when your emails are stored in the cloud. Go back to the situation with regular mail. It's now called snail mail, I guess, is what it's called. Some of us still use snail mail. You know, of course, if you're writing a letter to someone, and you seal the letter and you put the stamp in it, over it, you actually give that letter to government. And government sends that letter all over the country until it finally reaches your mother-in-law's house. But there is a general expectation of privacy in the contents of that letter. Sure, there are exceptions. We're not going to talk about the exceptions. But there's a general rule government cannot go into that letter and read what you're writing your mother-in-law. Can't do it. Well, what if the government hangs on to that letter for six months? Well, does that change your reasonable expectation of privacy? Probably not. And this is going to not a private company. It's going to government has the duty to protect your right of privacy. Emails, they're not going to the government. They're going through a server through a private enterprise through a private corporation. That should be even more protected, not less protected than regular mail. Why? Because it's not in the possession of the government. It's in the possession of a private entity. But yet, if government waits out the six months, then they can seize all of that information through the cloud. I think that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, and I certainly think Congress should weigh in on this issue to make sure that it's a protected right under our Constitution and legislatively. There are other examples. You have a safe deposit box, and you take over your birth certificates or whatever people put in safe deposit box, and you take it over to the bank, and you leave it there. Is your right of privacy the right that you must require government to get a warrant to search your safety deposit box forfeited after six months? because it's six months old? I think not. But yet, for some reason, because the way the law was written in a time where all of this high technology didn't exist, the law allows for that seizure of information. And not only is it seized, the citizen doesn't know that it's seized. They're not informed that it was seized. Or what was seized? Going back to the search warrant requirement. Now, the search warrant requirements differ from state to state, but they all require an affirmation or oath by the person who wants to do the searching. But in many warrants, criminal warrants, for example, in the state of Texas, those warrants are returned to the judge, and the judge gets to review what is in the return, what was seized by government. And eventually, those warrants can become public record. So everybody is on notice as to what was seized. Plus, 
the person that the property was seized from gets a copy of what was seized. That's how important warrants are, except in the area of receiving information through emails. You not only don't know that your property emails were searched, you don't know what was taken by government. And further, government keeps that information forever. And you may never know about that, even if you're an innocent bystander. Let's go back to Ollie and Oglethorpe and his brother, Bobby Joe Oglethorpe. In their email train of criminal activity, if you wait six months, the government can seize without warrant all of their emails, not just between each other in their criminal enterprise, but to whoever they were sending emails to or communicating with back and forth. And that third party, innocent party, let's assume, certainly doesn't know about that. My personal opinion, that's a violation of the Fourth Amendment right to be secure in your persons and your papers and your effects under the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. So what does EPCA do? It basically applies the fourth, the, the changes in all the legislation, applies the Fourth Amendment standard to uh, emails. There's a lot of reasons why that should happen. First, it puts people on notice as to what the rules are going to be. Not wait for the Supreme Court or other courts to make maybe different opinions down the road as to whether it's lawful or unlawful now. Put them on notice. Congress has that responsibility uh, to do so. But also, we have a, 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 a disadvantage. I say we. Uh, American companies have somewhat of a disadvantage because this rule, people know that this is what occurs. So other companies, other countries compete against the United States where people go to some other server where they don't have this problem with the right of privacy. Who would have thought that this nation, being the nation that's supposed to be the most democratic, freedom-loving, protects the right of people to be secure in their houses, right of privacy, would be second to countries that don't have that issue, supposedly, but yet protect that right on their servers. So that puts uh, our, our American companies at a disadvantage. Get a warrant. That's the bottom line. Get a warrant. If you don't have probable cause to get a warrant, then you can't seize the information. That's what the standard should be. It should be it's been that way since we enacted the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and it should be that way indefinitely. Some say that the Constitution is archaic, it doesn't apply, you can't make, it, you can't make this work based on the Constitution. I think it applies quite easily, the general rule, to get a warrant if you want to seize the information that belongs to individuals, uh, whether it's in snail mail or whether it's in email uh, or whether it's uh, a lockbox at uh, some bank. Now, where is this legislation going? Well, I hope it goes and passes this year. It is a bipartisan piece of legislation. All of this legislation is bipartisan. It's in the House. It's also in the Senate, past the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. Senate, uh, a piece of legislation to protect the right of privacy, get a warrant if the emails are over six months of, of age. Uh, I would hope, I'm on the Judiciary Committee, I would hope we could get this um, through committee and on the floor this year.
this is actually something that I think is, will pass. It will pass the House. It will pass the Senate in a bipartisan way. The president indicated some months ago now that he thought that there should be some ECA reform as well. So I think that's uh, something that ought to happen, something that ought to continue, that we could, should continue to work on with other members of Congress and move uh, out of the Judiciary Committee in the House and then get a floor vote on the House bill and get a floor vote now on the Senate bill as well. Now, I will stop at this point and take a couple of questions, see what's on your mind, or comments if you wish. Yes. Yes, this is just one issue of government oppressiveness of citizenry. Uh, law enforcement always will, seems to push the envelope as to whether they can do what they're doing to get information, especially on what they think is criminal conduct, based on my experience at the courthouse, based on what we've seen. They will always interpret the law to the extent that allows them to seize the information. That's why when we draft this legislation, it has to be very specific so they know you can do this and you cannot do that. But it's not just with what's stored in the cloud. I mean, you could talk about the NSA, for example. The, the ma uh, massive amounts of data that have been seized on Americans from the NSA in violation of the Patriot Act. Uh, and they still have that information. We don't know what they, all, all of the information they have because they're not telling us what they have on individuals. I will say this, you know, it's always in the name of national security. Nothing wrong with national security, but that's the argument. We have to give up rights, is what we're told, in the name of safety and security. Now, that argument has been used by governments always. And unfortunately, people, historically, whether it's a democracy or not, have been kind of willing to give up their personal liberty in the name of hoping to get protection and safety. NSA, let me just give you this one comment. We had the undersecretary of the Justice Department before the Judiciary Committee, and I asked him, of all of the information that has been seized by NSA, all of it, how many people have been prosecuted upon this massive seizure of information in the name of national security? Do you know what he said? Maybe one. So, actually what they're saying is, is not making us any safer. They're not getting the information that protects us from the bad guys because only one person maybe has been prosecuted. But they store this information on Americans. I think it's wrong. I think it's a violation of privacy. It certainly was also a violation of the Patriot Act. That's why uh, a week before last, uh, many of us uh, got on an amendment to, uh, to make it more specific on what NSA can seize and what they cannot seize. And uh, it's, it is a symptom of a bigger problem of government seizure of information on citizens in violation of the law and the spirit of the Fourth Amendment. I don't know if that, does that answer your question? I think we can probably squeeze in one more, and I think we have uh, microphones for, uh, uh, if we have uh, any further. Yeah. Yeah, uh, one uh, problem uh, 
we've had for many decades now is enforcing the Fourth Amendment is that the only remedy provided when the Fourth Amendment has been violated is excluding the evidence, which means if the Fourth Amendment rights of an innocent person have been violated, there's no remedy. Um, and I was wondering, does uh, your uh, legislation uh, try to address that, provide some remedies to enforce, you know, uh, to, you know, in, in case, uh, in, in case those uh, seizures that you're making illegal, in case they are made, not just by excluding the evidence, but also protecting innocent people. Excellent, excellent comment, and you're exactly right. The United States has, has come up with the philosophy of the exclusionary rule, which means if evidence is unlawfully seized under the Fourth Amendment in a criminal case, that evidence is excluded and government may not use that evidence if a judge determines that it was unlawfully seized, whether it's Fourth Amendment or whether it's a confession, any unlawful. That's the remedy under our law. I think your point is well taken. As we move forward on EPCA, there has to be some other remedy besides exclusion as to what we do with that information. Certainly, I think we ought to eliminate that information if it's unlawfully uh, obtained. Uh, but we're, that, we need to have that debate and that discussion. I don't know the exact answer on what it should be, but it should be something else besides uh, it, the evidence is excluded. That doesn't help the individual who's the innocent person out there. It may help Bobby Oglethorpe and Ollie Oglethorpe, but it doesn't help the innocent person whose information was seized and is still stored by government. Good point. We need to add that into legislation before it gets uh, uh, out of our committee. One more question, or are we done? <laughs> I need one more quick one. I mean, you move on. Hang on for a second. You have social media and things like secure uh, portals that companies use to exchange information with each other, uh, things like that, uh, that are all out in the cloud. So, you know, what's your next step once you get the email protected? We have to address all of those issues as well. Right now, we want to solve the email issue with EPCA. Uh, I think for passage, we ought to deal specifically with emails so that we can get something and then amend it as we progress through uh, technology, keeping in mind the spirit of the Fourth Amendment as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much, Thanks again. And I'll invite uh, our uh, panel members to join me on stage here. We have, uh, I think, uh, as, as formidable uh, a panel as, uh, as one could ask for for an event like this. Um, joining me here, we have, uh, if you're here, uh, Greg Nojame, who uh, I, know, uh, I, know, I know quite well, who's a senior counsel at the Center for Democracy and Technology and the head of its project on freedom, security, and technology, uh, as well as co-chair of the American Bar Association's Committee on National Security and Civil Liberties. Uh, Greg spent uh, five years before that as an attorney in private practice at Kirkpatrick and Lockhart. Uh, and Director of Legal Services for the uh, American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, as well as Legislative Counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, he's a, really a, a veteran of the fight for digital privacy and also one of the driving forces behind the uh, Digital Due Process Coalition. We have, we have several members represented on stage. Um, 
Also uh, uh, to my left, we have uh, Nate Jones, who's an attorney in the Legal and Corporate Affairs Group at Microsoft, where he provides legal and policy advice on a range of issues uh, related to uh, legal compliance and government access to data. Um, he's also been on the other side. Uh, before joining Microsoft, he was a director for counterterrorism uh, at the uh, National Security Council staff at the White House, uh, and also previously counsel to the Assistant Attorney General in the uh, National Security Division at DOJ. Um, he's also spent more than seven years working on Capitol Hill, including five and a half uh, as a counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. To my immediate left, uh, David Lieber, a privacy policy counsel uh, for Google, uh, where he works on privacy and data security issues. I hear occasionally those come up at Google. Uh, previously, he was an associate at, in e-commerce e and privacy practice at DLA Piper and worked as a legislative aide to Dick Durbin on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then finally to my right, uh, Katie McAuliffe, who is federal affairs manager at Americans for Tax Reform and uh, executive director of their Digital Liberty Project. She uh, researches not only digital privacy, but uh, an impressively geeky portfolio of issues, including spectrum allocation and internet taxation. Uh, she previously uh, was a staffer for Congressman Cliff Stearns and a, a radio professional, uh, both in the US and abroad. Her uh, commentary has appeared in a, a dizzying array of national publications, and she holds a, a master's in uh, mass Communication and Telecom Policy from the University of Florida. So uh, please uh, welcome our panel. Um, and I, I want to begin, uh, I guess I want to begin with Greg because uh, I, I, I know really uh, few people who are more well-schooled in the intricacies of ECBA. And so before we discuss um, current challenges and the need for reform, it's sort of an important to have um, as clear an understanding of that Byzantine statute as uh, as is possible before we, we talk about the need to change it. So uh, I want to ask Greg to sort of begin maybe by, by trying to give us a quick thumbnail sketch of uh, how ECBA works now and why once upon a time people thought that made sense. Thanks, Julian. Um, again, I'm Greg Nojain with the Center for Democracy and Technology. Um, and I want to thank the Cato Institute for um, hosting this event and Julian in particular. Thank you very much. Um, so, so ECPA is a statute from 1986. And just to put a little flesh on the bones of 1986, I imagine some people in the room weren't yet born in 1986. One of the leading car models was the Ford Maverick. I didn't have one. I couldn't afford one. Um, but that was one of the leading car models. We had just put away our eight-track tapes, and we were now using cassette tapes. That was the world in which this um, statute that governs um, privacy on the Internet was born. Um, when, when we first um, were using the internet, uh, a lot of us used AOL, America Online. We downloaded the email from the um, AOL servers onto our computers. Storage was expensive. So you know what you did? You printed that email out because it was too expensive to save. And AOL would only save it for a few days after you had downloaded it. Uh, that was the, the world um, in 1986. Fast forward to today. Storage is cheap. Companies are out there saying, why would you ever delete anything? And people don't delete stuff. They leave it forever. And, they can, and it's really cool. You can access it wherever you are. You can use this little device and access information in the cloud no matter where you are. You could be in Germany and do it. It's really, it's really amazing how much um, technology has progressed. But the law didn't. The law stuck back in 1986. So it reflects its time. Um, and so, for example, 
because the AOLs of the world would not save your email for you for six months, if an email was that old, six months old and still on AOL servers, it was their property. That's how it was looked at. You had basically abandoned it. It had become a business record of AOL and it was available to law enforcement with a subpoena. That's the way the statute is written. Um, if it's a newer email, less than six months old, a warrant applies to get the content of that email. Uh, and ECPA didn't account for things that weren't in common use at the time. These little guys, cell phones. <clears throat> there were some cell phones. You know who had a cell phone in 1986? Captain Kirk had a cell phone. Was it, was it Zach uh, Morris, actually? <laughs> I think it might have been Zach Morris. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so the, the statute doesn't reflect, doesn't set a rule for law enforcement access to the location information that this little guy generates. Every few seconds, he pings off a tower. I'm here. If the call comes for Greg, send it here. That's what this phone is doing every few seconds. And a record is made that the phone is registering on that tower. Um, what does ECPA say about law enforcement access to that information? Nothing. Uh, and the reason it doesn't say anything is because uh, it wasn't a, uh, an issue to be resolved um, back in 1986. Um, now we have to face these issues. And um, 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 Judge Poe, to his credit, has got legislation to um, face those issues in a very good way. Thanks, Brett. Um, so looks like I'm going to address sort of the next question to, to, to perhaps uh, David and Nate sort of in tandem um, and divide this up as you want. But, but um, so we've had an array of court decisions beginning to address some of these problems in a, in a piecemeal way. So Greg mentions location. Um, we now have at least two uh, federal district courts uh, or federal appellate courts um, sort of holding that even historical cell phone location information um, does actually require a warrant because it's not like a dialed phone number. It's information your phone is sort of sending automatically with, it, with or without your knowledge. And um, so it doesn't fall under what's called the third party doctrine, exempting that basically from, from Fourth Amendment protection. Um, but you guys are, or Nate in particular, are dealing with some of the practical questions that arise um, as a result, not just of the federal statute, but evolving court decisions. We had a decision in 2010 in a case called Warshak holding that Fourth Amendment protection does apply to email, at least for as long as it's stored. But there's a whole range of different types of digital contents. Um, you guys now, I think both, both companies across the board require a warrant for what you consider content, and you've been sort of leading the, the, the way in terms of providing transparency about government requests. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering to what extent you still get requests for, um, for content or other kinds of information without, uh, uh, without a warrant? And, and also, I mean, to some extent, how you draw that thorny line between content and metadata in contexts where online it's not always clear what is content and what is metadata. You go to a web page, the address tells you what the content is. Is that content? Is that metadata? Um, so I'm curious how how you, what kind of problems you're finding arising, what kind of sort of th legal puzzles arise, and what kind of pushback you see from law enforcement? Dude, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, so um, thanks for that, Julian. Uh, so you, you alluded to a case in, in 2010 where the Sixth Circuit held um, that users do enjoy a reasonable expectation of privacy in their, in their email, um, notwithstanding what ECPA says and the distinctions that it makes 
you know, which candidly frustrate the reasonable expectations of users um, uh, that, that take advantage of our services. And, um, you know, the, the court went a little bit further in Warshak in saying that to the extent that ECPA does not require a warrant uh, for email content, it's unconstitutional. And, and I know that Google and Microsoft and others have relied on that decision. And I think the perception, at least initially, was that um, our application of that decision beyond the Sixth Circuit was aggressive. But, you know, I would submit that it wasn't so much that it was our application of the Warshak decision outside of the Sixth Circuit that should be the focus, but rather the application of the Fourth Amendment outside uh, of the Sixth Circuit. And, and because the, the, the court's decision in Warshak really sort of rested on, um, you know, core Fourth Amendment principles. Um, I don't think that we've really seen, um, particularly in, in, in recent you know, years uh, since the Warshak decision, a, a lot of pushback. Um, you know, we, we've heard periodically that there, there would be efforts you know, to, to challenge the notion that a warrant should be required in all circumstances. I think when we see this issue sort of crop up, at least from the Google side, it tends to come from state and, and local law enforcement agencies some of whom are not as familiar with the Warshak decision, um, they will file, you know, issue a subpoena for content, will remind them or at least make them aware of the Warshak decision, and then they tend not to, uh, at the other time, don't come back to us or they will come back to us with a warrant. We haven't really seen a lot of pushback on that. You know, from a broader public policy perspective, I think one of the bigger <laughs> risks is not so much that the Googles and Microsofts of the world will get a subpoena and provide content because that's just not the case in practice. We demand a warrant for content. It's smaller providers, some of whom may have you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of users, but are still sort of fledgling businesses that don't have necessarily the resources um, or the legal acumen to recognize the, the differences um, uh, between what ECPA says and what the Fourth Amendment says and maybe haven't followed this as closely. And so they'll see an official looking subpoena uh, that demands content based on, on you, know, uh, you know, based on a subpoena, and, and they will provide it. So those are the bigger risks from the public policy perspective, which I think just underscores the importance of codifying uh, the warrant for content requirement. Yeah, I agree with everything that David said, and I would <clears throat> add a couple of things. One is, you know, we're, we're operating in a, a global marketplace, right, where people have people have less familiarity with the legal requirements in the U.S. And particularly less familiarity when you're talking about case law and how that's being implemented. And so explaining to people and reassuring them that a warrant is actually required for content is sometimes difficult when you're dealing with people who are less familiar with our legal system and, and applicable law. So I think there's a significant interest that we all have in making sure that this is clarified in the law. Um, you know, the, the second thing I would say is I think, you know, what we're seeing here and what we're all talking about is trying to make sure that the law and the protections afforded to it under the Constitution keep pace with not just technological developments, but the way people and the extent to which people use that technology, the things they're storing in the cloud. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing important steps taken by the court those things are helpful. We're not getting a lot of pushback on those things. But, you know, while the court's been a leader in recent weeks and months and, and with Warshak, certainly, there's, there's a problem that we still have in that it's not a comprehensive solution. 
it does still leave a lot of gaps where we don't know what the law is, what we're supposed to be doing, what we're not supposed to be doing. And, you know, you know, we've got a case going on in New York right now. Facebook does as well, um, both of which raise important questions about what providers' legal rights are to challenge things when they receive them and, and you know, the geographic scope of U.S. legal process and whether or not Congress actually meant warrant when it said warrant and what the implications of that are in terms of what the particularity requirement, which Congressman Poe talked about, and, and all of the other aspects of the Fourth Amendment that that brings along with it. Actually, since you mentioned the, the global market that, uh, that you're competing in, I'm curious to what extent you actually see this raised as a concern, um, either by individual users, but I'm thinking in particular by enterprise customers. I know um, if you're a sort of a large corporation potentially dealing with regulatory agencies or, uh, you know, uh, local U.S. attorneys who, who are, you know, might be looking into uh, what a company is doing, um, you might really prefer that a subpoena or a request for information come to your in-house counsel rather than someone else's yeah. attorney. To what extent, both domestically and internationally, do you have a sense that there is a wariness about moving to the cloud for all the efficiencies that might entail because of the, the, the sort of practical differential in terms of their ability to ensure the privacy and the confidentiality of that data? Yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. I mean, I, you know, it's probably one of the things I, I underappreciated when, when I took this job, just how much time I would spend dealing with customer concerns on this, on the enterprise side. And, you know, to sort of use an example um, to sort of illustrate this, and I think this is another area where the law hasn't really kept pace with, with um, technology and the way people are using it. If you're a large multinational corporation today and you're providing your own email service and you have an on-premise email um, or cloud storage um, service, the government goes to you to get the information and they serve an order, a subpoena or sometimes a search warrant on, on the company itself, goes to their general counsel's office and they figure out how to respond to it. And there, there are certain information that they possess that is afforded protections under the law. There is a great fear out there, not just about government obtaining their information, but doing it without their knowledge. And I think, you know, when you're talking about a company considering moving to the cloud, there are a lot of them that are concerned that they're going to serve legal process on Microsoft or Google or somebody else and get that information without them knowing because of a non-disclosure order. And our position is basically, you went to the multinational corporation yesterday, you should go to them tomorrow. And it, it, we shouldn't be in the middle of that. And to the extent there are non-disclosure obligations, they should account for certainly the government's interest in making sure that evidence isn't lost or lives aren't lost. But there's often and you know, almost always a way to do that without compromising the investigation. If you can talk with the company's general counsel's office, they aren't going to notify the target. They're bound by the same non-disclosure obligations. And, and I think the law should uh, account for that. Um, you know, one of the things that was interesting in, in, I was recently reading the legislative history of ECBA, and one of the things that Congress stressed, you know, even though it got a fair amount wrong when it drew the 180-day line, um, one of the things that they were trying to do, and they made this very clear, is to sort of promote the adoption of new technologies like this. And I think without clarifying this, 
and you know, without clarifying the law with in some of these other respects, you risk undermining the adoption of these new technologies, which provide a, a number of benefits, as Greg was alluding to. Actually, also follow up because I mean, we've talked a fair amount of content, and we've been using, I guess, email as for synecdoche for content generally. Obviously, um, both Microsoft and Google and, and many other companies um, store an enormous amount of content, you know, other than emails, um, you know, including maybe backed up contents of, of, of phones. Um, but there is plenty of stuff that may be less sort of obviously content as opposed to metadata or some other kinds of transactional records. So if you, you know, create an event on a calendar, is the act of creating the calendar event, is that the content of a communication or is it, um, or is it somehow the, the, the metadata, even though you might sort of be hard-pressed to distinguish? Or we've mentioned location data, both Microsoft and Google have map services of various kinds that, that uh, would allow them to have repositories of, of somewhat detailed location data. In, in Google's case, I know Google's registered had to fight off privacy litigation involving um, ads in, in Gmail. Um, you know, sort of scan the, the, the email to provide keyword ads. Um, you could, I don't know if anyone's done this yet, but uh, you could imagine a kind of creative uh, uh, prosecutor or a law enforcement person saying, okay, well, you want a warrant for the content? We don't want to ask for the content, we want the ad logs. Um, so we can see if the, you've, you know, this user's been served ads um, about you know, searching for, I don't know, tax dodges um, or, or marijuana or something like that. Um, and you know, we're not asking for content, we're asking for your record of your ads that are served. So I'm, I'm curious if either there are situations where you've been pressed to draw that line that you've found difficult or, or, um, or situations where you're, you're not sure whether you would be able to, to, to sort of hold the line and insist on a warrant. Yeah, um, so, I mean, I can, I think we talk a little bit about this in, in our transparency report. I mean, I can say broadly speaking that we take a more expansive view about what constitutes content versus what is metadata. Um, I think, Julian, as you allude to, there are certainly a number of areas that are sort of in that gray area, and, and those are issues, candidly, that, you know, Congress might need to tackle in the next wave of, of ECPA reform. Um, given, given the challenges we face just in, in terms of sort of codifying this bright line warrant for content rule, it's unclear exactly when those issues might be taken up. But when you talk about things that aren't clearly content or clearly metadata, I can give you an example of search terms or photos. Those are things we consider to be content. Um, but as Greg was sort of alluding to before, there are, you know, there are um, pieces of data that Congress didn't contemplate when it enacted ECBA in 1986, and I think as a result, you've seen, you know, courts, uh, district courts, appellate courts, magistrates all disagree about uh, the extent to which, for example, location information requires a warrant, whether it requires it simply if it's being collected prospectively versus, you know, retrospectively, or how long does the collection need to uh, occur before the, you know, the, the uh, strictures of the Fourth Amendment apply. I think we're going to continue to see those things crop up. I just wanted to kind of put in there a little distinction as we keep talking about electronic communications privacy reform. There are a couple of different areas that, that fit into this broad umbrella. So when we talk about content, we talk about location, and then metadata is always one of the favorite gray areas. Um, but I think your question about, you know, subpoenaing the ad logs, what kind of information is that? You know, that's something that 
we haven't really talked about, but when you talk about the to from information, it's metadata, who called who, what time, metadata, so you can go back and track and find out where the content is if it is, doesn't get turned over to you. Content is going to be, it's electronically communicated. So we have to talk about what does communication mean, like when you said in the Outlook calendars. So if I invite one other person, is that, you know, is that an email? Is that um, some kind of public communication? I would wager to say that that is content if you're inviting someone to a meeting because it's sent via email, blah, 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 blah. Because I think most of us would expect it to be the same as if you sent a wedding invitation in the mail. Um, so when you look at those kind of things, when you look at email, when you look at cloud storage, when you look at photos stored online, when you look at anything like that that's stored online uh, between one or two other parties. Now, when we get into the third party doctrine, which is really where kind of the crux of this is, if I gave my information, Katie McAuliffe gives her stuff to David over at Google, but not David specifically, just to Google to hold, is Google considered the person that I just gave that information to? But really what they're doing is storing it like a file cabinet. They're not the person I gave it to, so they shouldn't be able to be subpoenaed. But if I had physically sent it to David, David could be subpoenaed because he has the other end of that email. So just like very, very basic bare bones, when we're talking about electronic communications content um, right now, talking about content and emails, that's what we're talking about. There's also location, um, there's pings and data dumps, and there's all these other things, but the con warrant for content is kind of what we're talking about right now. And I think the main question that we're really debating and what Congress needs to address and what um, Congressman Pope alluded to was that what is unreasonable and what's a reasonable search and seizure? And that's where our debate is here. And I think, me personally, I think it is highly unreasonable to go through my email stored with, um, stored with Google and not let me know about it. Actually, so since you mentioned a, a, an array of, of uh, things before Congress, can you maybe maybe you can bring us up to date on on, on where where things stand now in terms of reform and and maybe why we're sort of not already there? I mean, I realize Congress is in general fairly dysfunctional, but there seems to be a, a sort of shocking degree of unanimity that at the very least uh, a war warrant for content makes sense, which is what major major providers are already demanding, um, and yet seems to be stalled. So can you sort of give us a, a sense of what the, what the political landscape and what the sticking points here are? Sure. Um, I don't necessarily always think that Congress is dysfunctional. Sometimes the dysfunction is functional, right? Sure. So uh, depends, on, depends on which side you're on, right? So, but looking at this particular issue, and let's just talk about um, warrant for content on the House side to start out with. Uh, you've got a bill that solves the email problem. Yay. Also solves cloud documents. No one in here is excited about that at all. I don't know why you're here. <laughs> so we've got legislation that'll do that. Um, and then moving forward, you know, that's something that 220, someone correct me if we've got more, 220 are um, in favor of this particular legislation that fixes the Electronic Communications Privacy Reform Act. But it's stuck in the Judiciary Committee. And I'm not quite sure how something that is supported by 220 members of Congress can be stopped. I'm not quite sure how something with the broad support of companies, coalitions, think tanks, individuals, 
how something that has such broad support can be stopped and not move at all. Wait, 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 wait. Civil agencies don't have a probable cause standard. Do you know what that means? That means that they can't get to your email anymore once there's a warrant requirement because they can only have subpoena authority. So the civil agencies want to keep being able to read your email. So they want to carve out in the legislation that says, I'm a civil agency, that's okay, I have a civil warrant, which is a lesser standard than a warrant of probable cause, which you need probable cause, but I'm going to read your email anyway. And oh, because I do information sharing with the DOJ, I'm going to go ahead and do that too. So there's a loophole. That's why this isn't going anywhere. That's why it's not going anywhere in the House. That's why it's not going anywhere in the Senate. It's not going anywhere because the government wants to read your email without you knowing it. They want a subpoena. That's it. There's a, there is a, one of the sort of perversities here is that there is, uh, I think, often a sense that, uh, that sort of the Fourth Amendment applies strictly in the context of law enforcement and sort of, there's sort of other regulatory purposes. Um, it's, it's sort of less relevant somehow, although the original sort of impetus for the Fourth Amendment was, of course, custom searches, which is fundamentally a, a sort of regulatory search of, of, of business places, uh, often at, at any rate, uh, as well as private homes. Um, Julian, can I just build on yeah, jump, that jump a little in. bit? It, it just, it's, it's gotten to the point of absurdity, I have to say. Um, the government's power should be at its zenith when it's investigating a crime. That's when its power should be at its zenith. That's when it should be able to really penetrate and get the most sensitive information. And yet we're in this situation where on the criminal side, there is, there is a virtual, there is a consensus. Even DOJ says, we think that ECPA needs an update and that we can live with the warrant for content rule. And yet there's this notion that on the civil side, when the government's power is not at its zenith, it's not investigating the terrorist who's gonna blow something up, it's investigating um, stock fraud or something like that, that in that situation, there ought to be a lower standard. It just seems absurd. Absurd. I was actually wondering if, 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 I mean, I realize you probably can't get into enormous detail here, but since, since uh, both companies have been fairly transparent, what is your sense of the sort of spread of the kinds of information people come looking for? Um, what, what is sort of the nature um, of those investigations? And are you finding a... a is this any kind of shift over time as different agencies become more aware of the different kinds of capabilities and data that are being uh, that are being stored in, in what they're asking for as an oh oh now now you run a location service that's new information we can ask for yeah I mean I think you know frankly law enforcement um, is sometimes a little bit slow on the uptake but you know the services are public they do get on and use them and they, they eventually figure out sort of how they operate and, and what data would need to be stored to operate the service. And so I think, you know, they've, they're becoming more and more sophisticated. Um, you know, in terms of the types of investigations, I don't think that's changed much since, since so much of it is tied to the legal authorities. And, and, you know, now that we're in a Warshak, post-Warshak world where we require a search warrant for content in all cases, it tends to be, you know, things that you have to be able to get a search warrant to investigate. And so that sort of drives a lot of it. Um, but, you know, the the data types and the data fields that are provided are sort of um, incumbent on, you know, what what data there is in existence and, and how long it's stored and, 
and what specifically they ask for. Um, you know, we typically require them to be very specific in saying what types of data they're seeking under a request. They can't just send us a search warrant and say, give us so-and-so's data. Um, they have to specify what fields and, and things they want. So, um, and do you get, I mean, do you get a sense also, that, I mean, both of you get, or both companies get um, quite a lot of requests for information um, for transactional data or um, activity logs uh, or other kind of subscriber information. Um, so that's actually the bulk of the requests. And so I'm wondering what, um, what those tend to look like and, and, uh, and whether that's something that usually is fairly focused or whether, I mean, the, the, the number of accounts um, is significantly larger than the number of, um, of requests for, to both companies. And so I wonder if, you know, if that's in general you know, requests for a couple of accounts or do you occasionally see you know, sort of fairly egregious, well, what one might consider egregious sort of attempts to you know, rope in a whole lot of people at once? Yeah. Well, yeah, with, with, with the caveat that we can really only talk about what we get on, on the sort of domestic sure. side of things under, of under ECPA, um, you know, there, there's not, I mean, you mentioned the sort of bulk of, of the requests that we receive tend to be sort of transactional information. It's not particularly exotic. It's basic subscriber information that uh, users provide to us, for example, when they sign up for a Google account. So that could be name, uh, you know, gender, uh, information, you know, like that. And that's the information that generally can be obtained under ECBO with a subpoena. You know, there's, there is a significant percentage, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25% that we tend to get that, that does ask for content, which, you know, in which case we'll, add, you know, we'll, ask, for, you know, we'll ask for a search warrant. So, um, but it's not, you know, generally speaking, that the type of information that we get is pretty run-of-the-mill stuff that you... Uh, tend to provide when you sign up uh, sign up for our services. If I could just actually just build upon what I think um, Greg and Katie were alluding to before, because I wanted to be clear in terms of the the civil agency side of things, um, a warrant for there's a perception that a warrant for content would leave these civil agencies without a remedy um, uh, to do the sorts of things that civil agencies do. Um, in the case, for example, of the you know, Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, um, to investigate and prosecute securities fraud. Um, typically speaking, in civil litigation, and I think Nate was alluding, this to, alluding to, to this before, when you are investigating someone or uh, initiating litigation, you're going to serve a, a you know, demand or legal process on the target uh, of the investigation. Um, so you won't be going to a third-party service provider. That, that is, generally speaking, how civil litigation works. Um, so, you know, if there is a person that's being investigated, uh, that they're the target of investigation, and information's within their custody or control, they're going to have a legal obligation to provide that information. To the extent that they're uncooperative or intransigent, the SEC and other agencies have remedies um, to enforce the subpoena. Uh, and individuals that don't comply uh, with the subpoena can, you know, be hit with sanctions. They can be hit with adverse inferences. Um, they can uh, be prevented from pursuing claims. There are all sorts of remedies, I think, that, that civil agencies have to sort of ensure that bad actors can't be uh, you know, perpetrating fraud. And so if we focus just simply on the means by which that happens, for example, obtaining email from third-party service providers, and not the end of the investigation, which is to prevent the underlying 
underlying fraud that may be occurring, I think we're missing the boat. Um, but I also think there are other remedies too, some of which exist under ECBA, to the extent there's a concern about the destruction of evidence um, you don't need to have any legal process at all to come to a provider like Google or Process and uh, Google or Microsoft and, and serve a preservation request um, that will freeze the inc- the account and ensure that any information that is destroyed isn't really permanently destroyed. Um, and, and look, a lot of the examples I think that we've heard where this may actually end up being a problem, uh, where civil agencies don't have a warrant requirement, tend to be sort of edge cases, and they tend to be framed in hypothetical or theoretical terms. There aren't actual examples of actual cases where these things have tended to, to create problems. They tend to come up and sort of, you know, well, you can you can imagine a situation where you know X person is doing Y thing, but without sort of real world examples of how this is impacting civil agencies, it's really difficult to craft a solution that would address the problems they've been raising. We think there are adequate remedies under existing law. Um, and, and, and that's why we think that there should be a bright line warrant for content standard. Right. And, you know, going off of that again, the, you know, the next distinction, right, we're talking about criminal versus civil. So on the criminal side, you have the warrant, probable cause warrant standard, which would be used to go to the third party, I would also be notified as the target. On the civil side, there is no warrant authority, so you go directly to me as the target. Remember, this side over here, life, death, limb, children, women, all the scary words go over here. Money and white-collar things and, I don't know, other kinds of fraud goes over here. So... There are emergency exceptions for when someone is missing. There are emergency exceptions for when someone is getting hurt. That is taken care of. And the law enforcement, domestic law enforcement, has agreed that that makes sense. But if we want to find out stuff about you, like, I don't know, who's your affiliation as an organization when you file your taxes for status? Let's just read some emails. I mean, if you, you know, if you look at some of these things that this having the ability to circumvent the target and subpoena the third party by civil agency, what kind of door that opens and what kind of authority that gives the executive branch, what kind of authority that gives an independent, um, my favorite is the FCC, but maybe your favorite is the FDA or the EPA, or maybe you like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, I don't know. But this wouldn't apply to just one of these agencies. It would apply to all of them, and it, not just federal ones either. This would apply to state ones as well. So let's talk about local law enforcement that can go read your email now. So we're looking at like if Electronic Communications Privacy Act reform that is in the House right now, the section about warrant, um, warrant for content that Congressman Poe was talking about, there's another bill that's just straight up warrant for content, there's a bill that's straight up warrant for content in the Senate. If those bills pass as are, great, we're good to go. If there are changes, no, we're not good to go. It becomes worse than what the law is right now. So actually, so maybe Katie and Greg both. Um, I mean, again, there are a kind of a dizzying array of, of, yeah. of bills out there. Some of them are about warrant for content. Some of them are about geolocation specifically. Um, what what you know, bill or mix of bills do you guys see as um, as as sort of moving the ball furthest? Um, at, or just or give us a sense of what which which are the ones with the best prospects right now, and which are uh, which which are less uh, less likely to move. 
So, so if I could, I think I'll jump in on that. I think the ones with the best prospects are the ones that are straight up warrant for content right now. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's a relatively simple um, concept. It's been well debated on both sides. Um, the House Judiciary Committee has had a couple hearings, though they haven't yet moved a bill. Um, Senate has had hearings and it has moved a bill. Um, but once, and, and honestly, the, the other piece of data that I'd most let, want to protect, location information, it's not yet ripe, particularly at this point in the calendar to have that kind of legislation moving. Too many hypos will come up. It'll be hard to uh, account for all the hypos that'll come up and, and it's just gonna weigh things down. So if I had my druthers, um, it would be that the, uh, it's called the Yoder Polis bill in the house. It has 220 co-sponsors as Katie was saying, straight up warrant for content um, that that bill advances. It's the counterpart, it's identical to the bill that went through the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. And just to respond to one of the questions that was asked of um, Representative Poe, um, the question was, you know, you're doing email. What about all these other ways to communicate? You had asked the question. He covers those other ways to communicate because his, his bill goes to all content and content is defined as substance meaning or purport of a communication. So it doesn't matter kind of the, the electronic structure, if you will, it's all content. He's covering all of it. There would be a warrant required for all of it. Otherwise, you have sort of this weird puzzle of saying, well, is a Facebook message and email, I mean, it's sort of functionally, obviously, exactly like an email. Does it matter that it's called a Facebook message, even if, you know, is it no. doesn't travel by the SMTP protocol? No. Um, <laughs> right. Um, actually, since, since, uh, since Greg did bring up location, I mean, one of the things that uh, is a recent development I find particularly troubling is the growing popularity, um, we don't have, I guess, cell phone providers present, but of, of what are called tower dumps, where, again, police don't necessarily, you know, want to go and say, we have a suspect, we think he did the crime, we want to know, we want to confirm that he either was or wasn't, or his cell phone was or wasn't uh, at the scene, but rather, we have three robberies we think were committed by the same person, give us every phone that was near each of those locations, and we'll look for anyone who was at all three places. Um, obviously gathering huge amounts of information about a lot of people's location um, in, in a way that obviously is not linked to particular suspicion about any of them. Is that something that, that either of you um, are aware of having been attempted with respect to location data retained by Google or Microsoft? You guys wouldn't get that, right? Well, not that I'm aware yeah. of. Not that you're aware of, okay. Good. Well, I don't mean to give them any ideas. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Julie. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't do it. Um, and is that, is, I mean, what, how do you, what about you guys? I mean, you guys are obviously most concerned about content, but there are other kinds of, I mean, it seems like, an, a, you know, there are a lot of ways in which, for example, let's say the IRS, which until very recently had in their manual a, a section saying, by the way, uh, if you're investigating and you... Uh, uh, you want to read a, a tax filer's email, you may do so with a subpoena. I think they finally sort of agreed that they, they shouldn't do that anymore. Um, but for a lot of things like, well, what's your affiliation? Are you perhaps having too many communications with, you know, is our Tea Party patriots having too many communications with political candidates that maybe should call their tax status into question? A lot of that is the kind of information that would be revealed by metadata. Is, there, is that something, I mean, if, if you're particularly concerned about aggressive uh, regulatory agencies that, that, uh, that you see as, at least in some quantity, requiring some additional protection? 
So for me personally, and just speaking for myself as um, probably more as Katie and as Digital Liberty, when we talk about, um, I personally care much more about content and about location than I personally do about metadata at this point, because metadata is one of the checks that law enforcement can use to make sure that you've turned over all of the emails that have been sent. So when you use a suppression order and say, don't get rid of anything, they can check the log against what the provider has and say, hey, actually, you deleted this to so-and-so, and I need to see that. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing right now I think is important, especially if we're talking about protecting content, which, granted, it's, you know, in a sense, it's all content, but we're talking about the actual, like, the, the meat and potatoes of the email, Right. So I think um, I find that to be the most important. And then I also find location um, information to be very important and look forward to working on that a lot more. As Greg was saying, you know, right now it's become complicated with the Riley decision that just came out. I mean, you're dealing with, you're with GPS location. You're dealing with tower location. These are two t different types of location. So you need a different type of law. I mean, this is, you know, I click this button here, so it goes in the cloud. I click this button here, so it goes in my phone. So when you search my phone, what can you search? Can you search what's on the phone or can you search what's in the cloud? I mean, these are the kind of things that are being discussed, these types of decisions that are coming down and moving forward into the location space. That needs to be taken into an account before kind of talking about what will be done with location and also what is the future going to look like, right? So what is perspective and retrospective data going to look like? So right now you might say prospective seven days, no big deal. Retrospective seven days, no big deal. I wouldn't say that about either one personally. But, it, you know, it establishes a pattern of where someone's going and what they're doing. So kind of talking about that and you move closer and you say, well, just a one-time ping, you don't, it doesn't really tell you that much. But if we keep going down this route that we're going, when is one time going to be too much? And we don't know that. So that's a discussion that is is ongoing and that a lot of members are taking very seriously and looking into that. And as things change and as technology progresses and as we see things going that direction, there'll be a lot more discussion about location privacy and the decisions from the Supreme Court have been very helpful in that. You know, I, I would be surprised, actually, if Congress got to location information before the Supremes did. Huh. And, and I say that because there's now a split in the circuits. Right. The, the 11th Circuit ruled that you need a warrant for location information, stored cell site location information. And the Third Circuit said you might need a warrant for it, depending on the circumstances. And one other circuit said, I think it was the fifth, one circuit said you don't need a warrant for it. So there's a split. And so it's ripe for the Supremes to weigh in when they want to and when somebody appeals a case to them. Um, part of the issue with um, a, a lot of ECPA is that as, as um, Representative Poe was pointing out, if there's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, you, you have, your remedy is that you get the evidence excluded. So what does that mean? That means that a lot of criminal defendants will claim their Fourth Amendment rights were violated, and you'll get a body of law that develops about whether those rights were violated. ECPA doesn't have a statutory exclusionary rule. There is one in the Wiretap Act, but not for stored communications. And the consequence of that is you don't get the same development of the law except when the person makes the Fourth Amendment claim. If you could make the statutory claim, hey, they violated the statute, and so I get to um, get this evidence excluded, you'd get a lot more um, cases 
coming up through the courts. We don't have that many cases because we, we're only in Fourth Amendment land when it comes to the exclusionary rule. I mean, it, it is sort of a perversity of Fourth Amendment law that, um, in part because you, know, you don't want to make adverse precedent. You know, get turned down by a judge, you should shrug your shoulders and, and you know, ask another judge later maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, know, you certainly don't want a, a circuit court ruling against you as a, an investigator if you know some judges are issuing certain kind of orders. So uh, Fourth Amendment law tends to be made almost exclusively by guilty people trying to overturn convictions, um, which is, is perhaps not the most... Um, uh, healthy, uh, uh, you know, sort of structural condition for the development of, of, of protective law if, if we're also concerned about innocent people, particularly in the ECPA context when metadata, uh, at least when it's transactional records that are obtained under ECPA, um, don't always require notice to the people whose data is obtained, which means if data is obtained about you, data about what websites you're visiting, data about what people you're communicating with, um, if you're not indicted because there's no evidence that you're up to anything, you may never learn that it happened and therefore have no opportunity um, to, to bring, let's say, a, a Bivens action for violation of your, your federal constitutional rights, which is incredibly rare anyway. Um, but even if you wanted to, um, you would lack the opportunity. And so I think part of the issue here is that there's obviously an enormous amount of data gathering happening as the transparency reports from the companies that have been sort of leading the charge here um, show, um, but not as much of public awareness of how incredibly frequent that kind of digital search is. I mean, much more frequent than, for example, traditional wiretaps. Um, I guess before we shift to audience questions, um, is there any sort of last remarks anyone wants to make? Or can we jump to the audience? I I would just make one last comment. It's, uh, I've been in Washington a long time, and I've never worked on an issue where there was so much consensus, really. I mean, how often do you see um, Google and Microsoft sitting shoulder to shoulder um, um, advocating the same position? How often do you see um, Americans for Tax Reform and the ACLU on the same letter? I mean, it's extraordinary. There's a a website. You can read about this extraordinary coalition. It's www.digitaldueprocess.org. And you'll see just how many people have gotten behind these uh, ECPA reform principles, how many companies and how many academics and how many political groups from across the political spectrum. It's really amazing. And actually, I should say, worth thinking, uh, you know, uh, Google and Yahoo, uh, Microsoft companies that, and kind of increasingly, I never thought this would happen, even telecommunications carriers that in the last couple of years have begun voluntarily disclosing information to the extent they're legally able to about the quantity of government requests for information. So, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a, um, a positive trend that I hope we see continue. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's something that, uh, that uh, these companies have been, have been taking the lead on. Um, so yeah, let's let the audience uh, uh, jump in with questions. Uh, I, I am, will be uh, less, less tolerant than Representative Poe in that, um, I will enforce a, a, a three-sentence rule, which is to say somewhere around the end of your third sentence, if not before, I, I will hope that your voice rises in, in such a way as to suggest by that inflection that uh, a, an inter- interrogative is being posed. Um, let's start there. Just picking up on your last point, why does metadata seem to get such a pass? It, it strikes me that if I have a communication with, with Julian, it doesn't say necessarily much about the content, 
But if I had the same email that was addressed to the five of you, that is somewhat indicative of what the subject and the content of that email is about. So why, why the past? I think it's partly an historic artifact um, that when courts were coming up with rules for what was going to be protected by the warrant requirement, you know, there was a case, Smith v. Maryland, where the issue was, how about the numbers you dial on a phone? Is that going to be protected by the warrant requirement when that information is stored with the telephone company? And the court said, well, it's not as revealing as the content is. It doesn't even tell you whether the call was actually completed. It doesn't say who you even talked to. Uh, it just says you dialed these numbers. And you know you're conveying these numbers to the phone company to make the call. And so maybe it shouldn't be warrant protected. What's changed is that there is so much more metadata now out there about us. And it can paint a much fuller picture of what our activities are. Uh, and I think um, there's a growing consensus that metadata ought to be protected at a higher level than it is. One of the digital due process recommendations goes to metadata collected in real time, requires a higher level of protection. I think that we're moving in that direction. And in particular, the non-content, I think most likely to be first protected by a warrant requirement is going to be location information, just because it's so revealing, particularly when collected over a long period of time. And so I would jump on that and say, metadata is not getting a pass, it's ranking, right? So the content in my email is, all right, this is in my mind, right? The content in my email is more revealing than perhaps my GPS location, and that is more revealing than perhaps my communications. So this is my personal perspective. And I'm looking at what can be done and what can't be done. and. If I walk down the street and say metadata to the next 10 people, most of them will just think I'm babbling. Or that you were at a Star Trek convention. Yes, <laughs> which I was at now. Um, so, you know, that sort of thing, like you, you've got to look at education. You've got to look at what people are ready for. You've got to look at where we are and what can be done. And then there's this great universe where everything is perfect. But this, this is politics, baby. A couple of things. I mean, I, I, with apologies to Arthur C. Clarke, I tend to believe that, that uh, any metadata sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from content. Um, in the kind of most proximate kind of scenario to what you're discussing, it's not just that if you send all of us uh, an email, um, the content's obvious. It's that there are things with no real analog in the telephone context. Um, I might take out a, a, a Craigslist ad looking for foot fetishists, let's say. Um, Craigslist will create a sort of bespoke, specific email account corresponding only to that ad. So in that case, the metadata, in that sense, the, the fact that I am contacting that email ad address um, is telling you very specifically what the communication pertains to um, because the only purpose for which that email exists is to communicate with respect to that specific ad. Um, there are email addresses that are in themselves in a sense, a kind of content or action. So, you know, I send an email to subscribe at, um, you know, unitarianuniversalists.org or, um, you know, angrylibertarians.org. Um, well, that tells you that I am attempting to join, in effect, a political discussion group. Um, that's maybe 
a first more than a Fourth Amendment issue under uh, NAACP v. Alabama. Um, if you're interested in following up on that, uh, Professor Ed Felton of Princeton wrote a very interesting affidavit in one of the legal challenges to the NSA's 215 program discussing how in quantity uh, metadata can, can in fact be uh, effectively as revealing as content, because unlike content is structured and more tractable for analysis. But that's, um, I mean, this is this sort of, in a sense, requires a level of sort of t technical understanding of, of, of really just how revealing that can be. Um, and we, we may not be there in the courts yet. I think we've got time for a couple more um, in the middle. What's the law or the situation now with standard mail? If the post office uh, uses electronic sorters, could it uh, collect the uh, addresses and names because it does have them in the computer and save oh, them are. forever? Yeah, CIA and as I do that, the intelligence agencies do that routinely. Um, by statute, one of the first sort of federal privacy statutes was was legislation protecting, uh, or as well, internal rules protecting the privacy of uh, postal communications. They understood that people would not. You know, gladly use the federal postal system if they believed that the uh, uh, contents would be read indiscriminately. Um, it appears that at least with respect to, um, I guess, snail mail metadata, that is the external envelope content, that is routinely analyzed by the intelligence agencies. Um, this is, I guess, part of the things we've learned recently. I don't know if Greg... Uh, I don't believe it's been challenged. Um, Greg, I don't know. Is they, that they, they get even on the criminal side? You get a mail cover, mm -hmm. right? And it allows you to get the ad, allows the FBI to get the addressing information on the envelope. Um, I think that it probably hasn't been challenged of late. I think it's pretty much accepted. Um, the issue that I guess we're talking about is what's inside the envelope, not what's on the outside. I mean, so, the, theory, the theory in that case is to some extent you, you have to expose the address information to the government because you're asking the government to deliver the letter. Um, and the analogy sort of, I think, works the same way in the content, on the content side, the, the theory, I think, being, look, you're exposing the metadata to the company. You're asking them to use that information to, um, to convey your communication. Um, whereas they don't really need to sort of inquire into the contents of the letter itself. It's not a record they need to create to route your communication. Um, how that works on the internet, which essentially has sort of a nest of seven envelopes, one inside the other, um, is, is a kind of interesting and difficult puzzle. Um, one of the things we think NSA is probably doing is, um, is essentially looking a layer into the envelope um, looking at sort of information at the backbone level that the backbone wouldn't normally look at. So uh, there's sort of interesting legal challenges afoot there. Um, this is a whole sort of array of, of sort of fascinating kind of legal puzzles of how, to, how these analogies apply. Unfortunately, um, and again, the courts are not always sort of super um, attuned to the, the technical details that may make these sort of simple analogies uh, break down when you actually start getting into the details. I think we can do one more. Uh, let's, let's go there. Yeah, this is good to hear the comments that sort of acknowledge the fundamental uh, speciousness of the metadata versus content uh, divide. But um, my question is actually about the Riley decision, which was uh, preventing a search of a telephone device 
just incident to arrest. Um, and so does that apply specifically only to a device that has a cell phone radio in it? Or, for yeah. example, if I had my laptop there in the car, does it apply to that too? Oh, it would apply to that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a point in the decision where Roberts um, basically says, well, look, these are basically mini computers. We could call them phones or we could call them cameras or we could call them. I mean, we should have, have arbitrarily picked one of the 100,000 functions these devices served as the name for the whole device. But I mean, honestly, the thing I do with this least frequently is make phone calls. Um, like, oh, this, it has an app for that? I didn't even realize. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I mean, so part of the decision does mention the network capability, but the, the essence of it is that the massive quantity of data stored on it um, is what makes a difference. And whether it um, has a, a, you know, an LTE radio or only Wi-Fi capability or is in fact just a massive storage device um, doesn't, doesn't seem to be the core of the logic of the decision. No, I don't think that's really necessary. When you read that case, I, I just think there's no question that a laptop contents would also be protected. David, you had had some commentary about um, the case and um, what it means for the cloud. There was a yeah. passage in the court's yeah. decision. And Ju Julian actually alluded to this at the outset. You know, I, I think there's some fairly there's some fairly strong and powerful rhetoric in the decision. You know, um, you know, justice. Robert's, you know, general admonition, I think, to law enforcement agencies in this uh, context was, um, you know, I'm just going to read from it. Our answer to the question of what police must do for searching a cell phone seized incident to arrest is accordingly simple. Get a warrant. Um, but the other thing that he discussed, and again, that Julian alluded to, is that most users of cell phones don't necessarily know whether the data is being stored locally on the phone itself or in the cloud. And he said it generally makes little difference. Um, I think that has enormous implications for the issue that we're talking about today. And while I think it's unlikely that we'll see a case that comes uh, before the Supreme Court, in part because we don't see the challenges happening at the, at the lower courts, um, I think that just underscores the importance of, of Congress codifying the warrant for content standard. Uh, but there's no question, I think, if you read the decision, um, that, it, that it's more broadly applicable than, than just the contents of uh, communications that might be stored on, you know, locally on the device. There are implications for the cloud. You know, otherwise, you know, that, you know, that discussion that uh, Justice Roberts went into in the decision you know, wouldn't be necessary. Well, uh, as, uh, as one of... Uh uh, Cato's favorite political philosophers, Jay-Z, would put it, I know my rights, so y'all going to need a warrant for that. Uh, and, and perhaps at, at some, time, some point in the near future, uh, that injunction will apply uh, equally in the cloud and on physical devices. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel uh, and join us in the Winter Garden for drinks and snacks.